go ahead and get our Bibles out to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Shouldn't be that hard to find, right there on the first page. As you're getting your Bibles out, let me just go ahead and tell you, warn you in advance, this morning's sermon is going to be a little bit longer than usual, uh, as will next week's sermon. Uh, I know Las Villas is calling us, the chips and the cheese dip. Um, but brothers and sisters, if, if what we're doing here isn't just a game, if the gospel is true, if eternity is going to last forever, then I think it's probably worth it to spend a, an extra few minutes here making sure we understand things that are of eternal importance. Amen? Amen. I have five points for you in this morning's sermon. Point number one is deity. Point number two is dominion. Point number three is dignity. Point number four is death. And point number five is destiny. Point number one, deity. If you lived in the ancient world you would have more than likely lived under the rule of a king. And the king that you lived under would have more than likely thought of himself as a god. Now these god kings of the ancient world, these ubiquitous god kings, they they all wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to project themselves out into their kingdom. They wanted to manifest themselves everywhere in the kingdom all at once. That's difficult, seeing how even the god kings of the ancient world were still human beings. Therefore, they could not be everywhere in the kingdom all at once. So, in order to do this thing that they wanted to do, what they would do is they would create idols. And an idol is just an image, right? It's a projected image. So they would create these images of themselves, and then they would have their servants place them all throughout the land. And these images would serve to reinforce the, the dominion and the rule of the king. Pay your taxes, offer your sacrifices, and don't make me angry. You know, that kind of thing. And then there's Genesis 1. As God begins to tell his people the story of everything, he begins by presenting himself as a king. In the ancient world, a king would be most easily recognized in his ability to use his speech to bring his will to pass. Conquer that land, build that pyramid, get me another wife, you know, that sort of thing. And when a king would speak, his will would come into existence. And so, as we open Genesis 1, we find God, the high king of heaven. What does he do? He speaks And when he speaks, his will comes into existence. Let there be light. And there was light. But in creation, we find that the God of the Bible is a different kind of king. He is the king of kings. He is not merely the ruler of some obscure kingdom of the Fertile Crescent. He is not merely the ruler of some people group in some tiny backwater locale. He is not even merely, as Genesis 1 tells us, 
merely the king of all of the earth. He's the king of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. Therefore, he rules over everything. He spoke them into existence by the sovereign power of his word. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And if you've seen images from the telescopes, all the hosts, that's billions and trillions of hosts. And he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in their storehouses. Let all the earth Fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now, here's where things get interesting. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This is at the peak of God's creative actions. He says, so, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God tells us that we are created in his image, he's saying something like this. I, the king of the universe, am projecting my divine kingly image out into my kingdom, that is the world, through you. You are my idols. I'm not present everywhere in the world, but I've created you to be present everywhere in the world and to image me and my glory to the entire earth. It's a very strange thing when you read through Genesis 1 and and the subsequent uh, chapters and books of of the Old Testament, that God never has an image of himself. I mean, if you know anything about the religions of the ancient world, you know that they are all about having images of gods. You know, even the Pharaoh and the kings of Babylon, they would find that all these images, all these idols that were placed all over various, various lands, sometimes they would come along and conquer a kingdom, and they would scratch out the face from one god and put their own face on it. That's how significant it was for them to have their image everywhere. And yet Yahweh, the God of the Bible, he doesn't ever do that. Even when he has a tabernacle, there is no image. In the temple, there is no image of him. True, there is his presence, the the Ark of the Covenant. That's supposed to represent his throne, and that's where he's sitting, and there's a footstool. But there's never a picture of him. Why? Because we are are his image. God has imaged himself in the world, his temple, in the face of human beings. Now, we know, I think, good Protestants that we are, we know that we shouldn't make idols out of the Lord for a whole bunch of reasons. He's a spirit. We can't capture him in the physical world. We know that we don't make idols because we can't capture all of who God is in an image, no matter how talented the artist, no matter how impressive, robust, or three-dimensional the image may be. All that's true. But friends, another reason why we don't make idols or images of God is because God has already created His own idols. 
He's already projected his image out into the world. He's done it in you and me. And it is foolish and arrogant to think that we can improve upon the image that he has already made in mankind. You know, it's said that Protestants are against the use of images in worship. And that's not true. We love to behold the image of God in worship, which is the reason why you're all in this room this morning. The reason why the church gathers is so that we can behold the image of God in one another as we praise and worship God together. Protestants are not opposed to images of God. We are opposed to man-made images of God. Now, you've probably noticed that the language that the Bible uses when it talks about being made in the image of God, it doesn't just merely use the word image. It says we're made in the image and likeness of God. And so we kind of understand the image stuff, but what's going on with this language of likeness? Well, likeness refers to that part of human nature which mirrors the nature of God himself. So God creates, and humans created in his likeness have creative capacity. God loves, he creates us in his likeness, and we have the capacity to love. God is logical, we create aphorisms and syllogisms and all of the other isms because we are logical beings. The, the likeness of God is seen in mankind when we observe the human capacity to appreciate beauty, for example. When, when the rational mind that we possess as human beings goes beyond mere animal level baseline instinct and sentience, we see the likeness of God in mankind. The likeness of God is seen in our capacity for worship and wonder and delight. You just got finished reading that book and you got to tell somebody about it. Ants don't do that. The likeness of God refers to our nature, who we are as humans in our very being. Whereas the image of God is more functional. What do I mean by that? The image of God means that God has made us like himself in our nature so that we can do what he has called us to do, which leads us to point two, dominion. The takeaway from point two is very simple. The thing that God has called us to do is to image him by exercising dominion. Note takers, it's one line, right? We image God by exercising dominion. And how do we exercise dominion? Well, verse 28 tells us by subduing creation. Look there at verse 28 with me. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So now there's a a careful distinction that we need to see here. God places man in nature as part of creation, but he also calls mankind to rule over creation. Do you see that? Do you notice that mankind does not have its own special day for creation? We are created on the same day that the beasts are created. What that communicates is that although we are called to have dominion over the beasts, we are still very much a part of nature. And yet we are called to subdue nature. 
Now, I know that this language, dominion, subdue, it could feel problematic. It can give us the heebie-jeebies. I get it. We lived in a messed up world, and very often those who have dominion use their dominion to do damage. But we should notice here, friends, that the call to exercise dominion is something that God gave human beings before the fall. This is something that God created human beings to do and said it was a good endeavor, not a sinful endeavor, not a violent endeavor, not a problematic endeavor. In the beginning, dominion was a good, productive, life-giving exercise. And still today, even in a post-fall world, when dominion is exercised properly, it can be a very good, productive life-giving exercise, but more on that later. Now let's talk about the word subdue. So that's dominion, now subdue. When you look at the word subdue in your English thesaurus, you'll find some synonyms there that make the word subdue sound even worse than it probably already sounded to you upon first hearing it, right? Here are some of the synonyms for subdue. Conquer, defeat, Suppress, crush, quell. Okay. But that's just an English translation of a Hebrew word that that doesn't quite mean those things, at least not in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the word subdue simply means to bring under control. It means to impose one's vision. So just consider this metaphor. Consider the metaphor of a garden. A family moves into a new house, They have a big backyard, and this family, they love fresh tomatoes and zucchini and squash and watermelon. So what do they do? They subdue the plot of earth behind their home. They impose their vision on the soil there. They bring nature under their control. They chop down the trees. They grind the stump. They pull up roots. They kill weeds. They build a fence. They kill the pests, they till the soil, they plant the seeds, and that's about all I know about gardening, but you can fill in the rest. Now, when the family does this, when they cultivate the earth, when they impose their vision on it, they are exercising dominion on the earth by subduing nature. They are imaging God. This is a microcosm of God's vision for all of mankind on the earth. Now, microcosm, what do I mean by that? It's like a tiny little representation of a much bigger reality. Where am I getting this idea of a garden as a microcosm for what God's design is for all of the earth? Which is right there in Genesis chapter 2. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 15 of Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Right after God creates man and says, I want you to image me by exercising dominion and subduing the earth, he takes him and he puts him in a garden. He's like, all right, do it, go. (laughs) This is a very high calling. It's a very good thing. I want to say that again. It's a very good thing. 
Did you notice the language that God uses in verse 28? Go back over to chapter 1, just look down at verse 28, and just notice the language that God uses here. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue and so on and so forth. Friends, when God calls Adam and Eve to this this work of imaging him in this way, he puts his holy blessing on them. Why? Because he knows that godly dominion will only cultivate more goodness and flourishing on the earth. Even in a post-fall world, friends, we can still see man's capacity and our drive to image God by exercising dominion everywhere. You see it in the arts, painting, sculpture, cinema, photography, other weird art stuff. You see it in engineering, right? Oh, there's a a river here and land. What are we going to do? Don't worry, I'm going to exercise dominion and I'm going to subdue this part of the earth through the science of engineering. Pharmacology, oh no, bacteria are trying to kill us. What are we going to do? Exercise dominion by subduing creation through the use of antibiotics. Agriculture, metallurgy, carpentry, animal husbandry. Now I'm using words I don't really know what they mean, but maybe you do. Banking, geology, geography, arithmetic, oh my. We can just keep going. All of this is dominion through submission. In all of these fields, we are exercising our royal duty and privilege to image God by subduing the earth. Remember this, friends, as you live your life. This is a practical, tacky boots on the ground piece of information that you're learning about your existence on this earth. If you lay your head down at night and you experience some existential angst, what are we all here for? What does it all mean? At least part of the answer is you're here to image God by doing these things. So the next time you handle a brick, you know, mud and clay and such, right? Or you put on a polyester shirt or put gas in your car or read a book or build a shed or charge your cell phone or look something up on Google. The next time you check your bank account or decorate your living room, Amber, plant a garden or build a house or open up your fridge and get food that's been preserved by the coolness thereof. Or the next time you simply walk through a door and into a building, remember That these things exist because God has created mankind to image him by subduing the earth. The world exists as you know it today because there is a deep, deep, deep desire in all of us to do these things. And mankind is distinct in creation in this way. Cows do not possess the desire to create. They do have four stomachs. That's an interesting fact. But they don't say, you know what? I'm going to figure out some way to get across these bars that this farmer's put in to keep me where I'm supposed to be. Grass does not have the capacity for imagination and planning. Dogs, all you dog people, listen to me, (laughs) do not have the skill to craft or the desire to create for the sake of beauty. I love dogs too. I'm just kidding. Trees do not possess determination. 
The stars, as glorious as they are, do not have the capacity to wonder. Rocks do not have the ability to enjoy the works of their creator. Human beings do the kinds of things that we do because of who we are in our very nature. And who we are in our very nature is not the result of billions of years of gene changes that have happened by accident. No, who we are, even at our worst, who we are is something glorious. And it is inescapable. Now, this doctrine this doctrine of the Imago Dei, the doctrine of the image of God, it's kind of like a sharp tool. And um, a sharp tool in the hands of an ignorant person can be very dangerous, right? So a fool, a fool sitting here this morning will hear what I'm saying and he will gloat over these truths, right? Like a petulant child, he'll say, aha, I knew it. I am glorious, and I am supposed to be in charge, and I am supposed to subdue everything, and I'm the king, and the world belongs to me. But a wise man will hear these truths and will understand that they must be handled with the greatest care. A wise man will understand that the world has been given to us as a stewardship, but that it does not ultimately belong to us. Now listen, we are glorious stewards, glorious, but we are still stewards nonetheless. And one day we will have to give an account for the way that we have exercised dominion on this earth. Now, before exiting the room of point two and moving into the room of point three, I want to dance around this room a little bit more and point out a few things that, that, that we should see here. Because it's a very large room and it's very well decorated and I can't point out everything that I want you to see while you're here, but I'd like for us to see a few more things, okay? So the first thing I want to point out is the fact that mankind, according to God's word, is not a blight on the face of the earth. Mankind is not a curse on this earth. Some environmentalism in our day has led to a kind of rhetoric that implies, if not often explicitly states, that human beings are a curse on this earth in every way. One CNN headline reads, the planet is being consumed by humans. Humanity is on a collision course with nature. Now friends, do I mean to say that human beings can't do damage to nature or that we can't be harmful to this world? Of course not. We absolutely can. We absolutely have, and we will probably continue to do more damage in the future. But my point here is that even when we mess up and we don't exercise our dominion properly, and when we do do damage to the earth, that does not erase God's call on humanity to image him by subduing the earth. Let me get more practical, okay? Less theoretical. In a fallen world, there is always going to be a trade-off when it comes to our stewardship of creation. There's just always going to be a trade-off. So, there will always be a mixed bag of flourishing on the one hand and sinful exploitation on the other hand, right? There's always going to be gain and loss. So, let me just 
Let me just give you one example of what I mean here. One example of this trade-off. Let's talk about fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are, on the whole, a net positive for humanity. Like, by a lot. Like, for the world, fossil fuels have been good, particularly for humans, and it's not even close. One author says it like this, access to fossil fuels has been responsible for lifting billions of people, billions, not a couple thousand, billions of people out of abject poverty. And think about all the things that go along with abject poverty. Decreased life expectancy, dangers for mothers giving birth, treatment of cancer, so on and so forth. Access to these has lifted billions of people out of abject poverty, making inhospitable environments livable and supplying the goods and services, the goods and services that underlie modern standards of living. And the author here, when he says modern standards of living, he's not referencing comfort and luxury, you know, like thanks for the gasoline, now I can have my five carat diamond. He's referring to things like clothing, medication, transportation, utilities, access to food at a reasonable price. Fossil fuels have been a massive gain for humanity, and yet we know that the burning of fossil fuels is not without some consequence in nature. How much, how severe is that consequence? Well, that's not a conversation for this morning's sermon. My point is simply this, there is a trade-off, and this will always be the case when we're talking about subduing the earth in a post-Genesis 3 world, whether we're talking about planting a garden in our backyard, or building an entire civilization, there is no free lunch when it comes to us exercising dominion. Point number three, dignity. If you read Genesis 1, all of chapter 1, in one sitting, like we did earlier, as our sister Jenny read for us, wasn't that amazing? She's actually going to start a career uh, doing Audible, so that's going to go well. If you read Genesis 1 in one sitting, hopefully you feel there's a kind of crescendo to this creation, right? God creates everything, time, space, matter, all that stuff, and then he fills everything, and then as he creates life, he begins with the creation of plant life, and then he creates animal life. And then finally, as the crescendo comes to a, an intense peak, he creates the life of mankind, human beings. We are the apex or the high point of God's creation. In Genesis 1, we learn that human beings are unique amongst God's creation. How are we unique? We are the only beings in the world, the only thing really in the world that images God. Rocks don't image God. Cows don't image God, right? We could just go down the list. This podium doesn't image God. Human beings alone image God. And that gives us a unique status in creation. And because of our unique status in creation, Christians believe that humans have inherent, pause for emphasis, inherent value, dignity, and worth. Uh, don't waste too much intellectual energy trying to differentiate between value, dignity, and worth. That's just kind of like piling words on top of one another to reinforce 
one really important truth, namely that human beings, and specifically human life, is very, very, very valuable in God's sight. Why? Because our lives image his glory, and his glory is very, very, very valuable in his sight. And yes, it is true, we're going to get there in Genesis 3, sin has made a mess of mankind. It has damaged the way that we image God. The example that Will Stevenson used in our Sunday school class this morning, which was so good, I just want to, I'm sitting in there, I just want to text every member of our church, why aren't you here? This is so helpful. No pressure for next week. But the, the image is that of a mirror, right? We image God. Like when, when you look in the mirror, you see a reflection of yourself. We are like the mirrors for God and his image, and we image him out to the world. But sin comes along, and it shatters that mirror. But the mirror doesn't fall to the ground. It just kind of spider webs and splinters all over the place. So now you can still see the image of God in us, but the image of God that you see is broken. It's distorted. We're not imaging God the way that we're supposed to. And yet, sin cannot utterly destroy the image of God in mankind. You can see that in Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, God says this, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For, because, in light of what I've just said, in the image of God has God made mankind. We can have conversations about capital punishment, whether it should happen in America or not. But what we see here is God is instituting capital punishment. And what he says is, because human beings are created in my image, their life is so valuable that if you wrongfully take their life, your life should be taken as a penalty. This is after sin has done damage to our image. We still have inherent value, dignity, and worth even as sinners. Now, let me dance around this room a little bit and point out a few more things. Pictures on the wall, items on the shelf. Because our dignity is inherent in us, that is intrinsic because God has created us to have it, it cannot be removed by anything outside of us in creation. Because our value, dignity, and worth is intrinsic, it's in us, it cannot be taken away by anything outside of us. So, this is easy example. The Nazis can come along with their really bad Darwinian eugenic science and say that, well, actually, Jews aren't fully human because they're descended down this one branch of Darwin's tree that's a, a lesser, lower quality branch, and therefore they're not fully human, and, and actually we can take their lives and it's of no moral consequence. They can say that, but it doesn't change the fact that those Jews who died in the Holocaust were image bearers of God. Additionally, we can take this in another direction. Animal rights activists that claim that animals are just as valuable as human beings. They're wrong. It's just not true, friends. We swap mosquitoes. We put poison out for rats. We shoot cows and eat them as hamburgers. And none of this is morally dubious. Now, let me be clear. The Bible is clear that it is sinful to abuse animals. Proverbs 12.10, whoever is righteous 
has regard for the life of his beast. Why? Because just because it's not as valuable as you doesn't mean it's not valuable. God gave you to have dominion over the beast, to serve the beast, love the beast, bless the beast, not abuse the beast. Even last week in Matthew 6, we saw that God is intimately involved in the lives of all his creation. Remember that? Jesus says, listen, God's caring for the grass of the field and the lilies. That's the lowest form of life, plant life. And he's involved in feeding the birds. Remember the sparrows? That's animal life. And then you, you of little faith, he's caring for you as well. Now listen, all of this is good and true. And yet we must, we must, we must maintain this distinction that God's general love for all of creation does not mean that all of his creation is equally valuable in his eyes. Human beings have unique value and worth to God. Now, here's something else for you to consider. And this is, this is experientially one of the most important things that we can pull from this text this morning. We have to understand that no matter what we've done, and no matter what has been done to us, and, and no matter what we may even be going through right now, the image of God is still in us and on us. We are still in His image and likeness. Maybe you're here this morning and you've come to think of yourself primarily in negative identity terms. You know, you've, you're maybe addicted to drugs and you're, your primary Identity is that of an addict. Listen, my whole family is drug addicts. I was a drug addict. I grew up all of my years going to smoke-filled rooms with NA and AA stuff. And every person who gets up, they stand up and they say, you know, my name is Sean and I'm an addict. And what they're doing there is they're asserting to the room their fundamental identity. Now listen, I'm not saying that 12-step programs can't or haven't helped people. I'm sure they can and they do. But friends, if you're here and you're an addict, you have to know that your addiction is not your primary identity marker. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with some kind of developmental issue, dyslexia, autism, I wonder if perhaps you've centered that and made that the primary focus of your identity. Maybe you're here and you've committed some kind of serious crime, you know, you've been convicted of something like a felony. And so now what comes to your mind when you think of yourself as felon, well, that's not the first thing that comes to God's mind when he thinks of you. Maybe you're here and you've had a divorce and you've been shamed by the church. Maybe some of that shame was good, but maybe some of the shame was bad. And now you just can't escape. This is my identity. I am a divorcee. Friends, that is not your main identity. Maybe you were abused by a boyfriend or a girlfriend or maybe as a child by your parents or some uncle, and you just can't escape this idea that you're worthless because of what's been done to you. No, friend. Not even at your lowest point of degradation did you lose the capacity to image God to the world. Maybe you're here and you're even now, struggling with some serious sin, and this sin has become your entire identity. I think about some of my friends in the LGBT world. Their sexual preference has become everything for them. 
And when I talk to them, I just want to say, what a terribly low view of what it means to be a human. You've taken one small aspect of yourself, your sexual preference, and you've made it everything in your life. You were created to be more than who and you like to have sex with and in what ways you like to have sex. And then I also want to tell them, in order to be who you were created to be, you must let go of what you have become. And we could just multiply the example. The same thing is true of the, the prostitute and the soccer mom. It's true of you here this morning. If you've made your entire identity out of the fact that you're a good religious person, well, friend, Jesus didn't come to save good religious people. Good religious people are not being remade into the image of Christ. Only sinners are. And we're all sinners. Our sin just looks a little different. The doctrine of the Imago Dei, this doctrine of the image of God, it is one of the most practically important doctrines in all of Scripture. If the doctrine of the image of God is true and beautiful and good, then it means that 10,000 other things are false and ugly and bad. Let's just work through them. The most immediate and obvious application is murder. Murder is wrong. Why? Well, there are all kinds of reasons why murder is wrong. First of all, you didn't create the life. You don't have the right to take the life. But at a deeper level, what we understand from the Imago Dei is that murder is wrong because it is a direct assault on the image of God. And this includes every kind of murder. This includes just classic, I, don't, I hate to say it like that, but just you know, regular murder, first degree, second degree, third degree murder, right? It also includes self-murder, suicide. It includes physician-assisted, medicalized murder, Assisted suicide, which is gaining prominence in the Western world right now, particularly in Canada. This includes abortion, which is murder that happens for all kinds of reasons in a back room, maybe to the most vulnerable human beings on earth. If the Imago Dei is true, then it means that things like racial superiority have to be false. They have to be wicked and bad, right? In the first chapter of The Great Gatsby... One of the characters, Tom Buchanan, he asks this. Have you read The Rise of the Colored Empires by this man Goddard? Well, it's a very fine book and everyone ought to read it. The idea is that if we don't look out, uh, the white race will be, will be utterly submerged. It's all scientific stuff, really. It's been proved. This fellow has worked out the whole thing. It's up to us, us who are the dominant race, to watch out or those other races, they'll have control of things. This idea is um, it's, uh, that we are the Nordics, I am and, and, and you are, and, and we've produced all the things that go to make civilization and, oh, um, uh, science and art and all of that. Do you see what I'm saying? This was the predominant view in the age that F. Scott Fitzgerald was writing in. Last week we talked about how the orthodoxy of science today may end up being the shame of science tomorrow. Well, friends, a hundred years ago, the science was settled on the question of race and racial superiority. Eugenics had proven that the white race was superior. And now, no scientist would dare say such a thing. But why? Why would a scientist not say that? 
I mean, if human beings are all just descendants of some primeval race of hominoids, could it not make sense that some branch of this hominoid species would go off and develop more intelligence, more creativity, more capacity than other parts of the hominoid race? Friends, listen. There is no ground outside of the Imago Dei to adjudicate racism. There is nothing outside of the gospel. If, if we're all just on a speck of dust in the black abyss of space and evolution is just sort of doing its thing, then racism is perfectly acceptable as one theory of how humans coexist. It is only when we understand that God says that we all descend from one couple, Adam and Eve, our parents, that we can then begin to put such an attitude to death. Amen. The image of God also puts to death ideas like slavery. God has given mankind dominion over plants and animals, yes? Did anybody notice in the text this morning where God gave dominion over other human beings? Not there, not there. Now, does that mean that there's no sort of natural authority structure amongst humans, even before the fall? Of course not. Parents have authority over their children. Their ch- children, there is an authority structure in, in uh, marriage and in society in general, but the kind of authority that says, you will now become my permanent property, and I sovereignly have the ability to assign your value, dignity, and worth, well, friends, that's nowhere in the Bible. It is wicked. It is an abomination to the sight of the Lord. One of the things that Paul says that people will go to hell for is for man-stealing. Why can't you steal other men? Because you're not God. You can't, you can't own men. The doctrine of the Imago Dei has much to say about other things as well. Just consider self-harm. Listen, we have some young people in our church and uh, some teenagers as well. If, if you've considered imitating some of your friends or what you've seen on the internet and you've thought about expressing your pain by cutting yourself, you should know that this is a deeply demonic desire. It's something that you feel And you don't have to understand your feelings. I'm trying to help you understand your feelings. It's something that Satan is doing to try to convince you to damage the image of likeness and likeness of God in which you are created. We talk about the way that the doctrine of the Imago Dei impacts the way we treat poor people. Is there anything about being poor that reduces the image of God and man? No. Is there anything about being uneducated that reduces the image of God and man? No. We can talk about how this doctrine impacts misogyny. Is there any, did you notice here, does it, does it say man alone is created in the image of God? Male and female, he created them in his image. Misogyny has no place in the Christian church. Why? Because women image God. And without women, mankind cannot image God completely. And we could just go on and on. And I know you want me to, but I won't. We have to keep going. But I will say this. To any of my unbelieving friends here this morning, you are encountering the story of the Christian gospel. And friend, you better hope this story is true. You better hope this story is true. If if you... If you reject this story 
And you still want to be an ethical and moral person, and everyone wants to be an ethical and moral person. Even if you want to cast off the, the bonds and chains of the Christian religion and all of that backward stuff, you're still going to be ethical and moral, just about different things. But if you want to be an ethical and moral person, you have to know that without this doctrine, your ethical feet are firmly planted in midair. If you reject this, all you really have is some kind of hollow philosophy like utilitarianism, which basically says that human suffering doesn't really matter as long as we kind of balance the scales in such a way that 51% of the people suffer less than 49% of the people. So friends, if you look out at the world and, and you find yourself in moral outrage, if you see racism and it gets your blood boiling. If you see anti-LGBT, oh man, here we go, LGBT sentiments, and it makes you crazy, you feel like it's an injustice. If you look at the atrocities of history that loom large in your mind as you think about the world, if you thirst for justice and you hunger for righteousness, stop and ask yourself, why? Why do you care at all? If we're all just a bunch of advanced gorillas, why does any of that matter? Could it be that you care because you know, even if you don't know, you know deep down in your bones, in your heart, in your soul, that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God? You know, when you look throughout history and you do look at these atrocities, you see one consistent factor in the pattern of atrocity. Whoever is committing the atrocity has to find some way to justify what they're doing and they always do it by attacking the image of God and man. Hitler, you know, that Darwin guy, he was right. We are all just a bunch of advanced apes and some apes have advanced more than other apes and these apes here, they're kind of holding us back so we should go ahead and kill them for the good of the race and the progression of the rest of the apes that are still here. Erasing the image of God and man, the Tutu, the, I always mess this up, the Hutus and the Tutsis, as they slaughtered each other by the hundreds of thousands, what would they say about each other? They're cockroaches. Someone would come along and they would say, how can you kill your fellow man like this? And they would say, a Hutu's not a man. He's a cockroach. Killing him is no different than killing a rat. Erasing the image of God. You take our ugly history of race based slavery. What did we do? We had to find some way to say that black people are not human. And then once we got it in our minds that Africans were not human, just because they had more melanin in their skin, we could do whatever we wanted to them for our own wicked and selfish gain. You take the abortion industry. What do we have to do to give ourselves permission to kill infants in the womb. We have to stop calling them humans. They're not babies. They're clumps of cells. Erasing the image of God so that we can commit our evil deeds. Point number four, death. This alone I found, writes the author of Ecclesiastes, that God made man upright, but man has sought out many schemes. 
Here's the thing about the doctrine of the image of God. It says this. It says that we human beings are created like God, but it also maintains the very necessary distinction that we are not God. And yet, sin has caused us to blur this distinction. Sin says, instead of representing God, you know, you can probably just replace Him. Instead of reflecting God's image... I'm going to try to recreate God's image. I, I hope everyone was engaged and prayerful with our brother Mike Cantrell this morning as he was leading us in that prayer of confession. It, it was, what he said was so true. Instead of looking in his word and trying to behold God as he has communicated himself to us, we move away from the word, and then what are we left with? Well, we're left with our own imagination. And pretty soon, the God that we worship is surprisingly like us. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? The God of our own creation, well, he likes all the things that we like, and he doesn't like all the things that we don't like, and he supports all of our politics, yes and amen, and, you know, he would raise our children the exact same way that we would raise our children, and whatever sex life we choose, well, that's the sex life that he's very happy for us to have. When human beings live like this in our own little perverted upside-down kingdom, we fail to exercise dominion on the earth. Instead, we do the opposite. We bring a curse upon creation. Instead of cultivating life, we bring about death and destruction and chaos and pain. You know, the thing that makes sin so terrible is well, one, it's an offense against a holy and righteous God, but I'm thinking from our perspective, one of the things that makes sin so terrible is that it robs us of the glory that God intended for us to have. We were created to be kings and queens on the earth. And yet now we find ourselves enslaved everywhere in chains. We were created, consider this, it's just, it's mind-boggling. We were created to have dominion over all of creation. And now we find ourselves in submission to creation. I mean, just think about what it means to be addicted to a cigarette. I've been there. Two, two packs of Newports a day besides all the other stuff I smoked, which we won't get into now. But this tobacco leaf wrapped up in a piece of paper, it controls us. How is that possible? This is not who we were, we were created to be. We were created to be fruitful and multiply and make babies and fill the earth with the glory of God. And now we sit alone in dark rooms watching people fornicate on computer screens. We were created to live free and abundant lives. And now things have gotten so bad that we feel the need to house human beings in cages like animals because of their antisocial behavior. Friends, sin has caused us to utterly lose dominion over creation. And the height of our loss is the fact that we cannot even exercise dominion over ourselves. You want to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the plants, you can't even exercise dominion over your own tongue. It's the battle of my life. Sean, you shouldn't have said that. Tell it to myself once a day. Okay, ten times a day. James 3, 7. 
All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Isn't that crazy? Human beings can cross oceans and fly to the moon and explore the deep and build towers as tall as the sky itself, but we cannot control what is flowing up out of our sinful hearts and crossing our lips. And if we were to stop the story right here, just the story's over and point four, death, it would seem like mankind has become nothing more than mediocre rulers just sort of making a mess out of all of God's creation. But the story does not end there, which leads us to point five, destiny. Destiny. Human beings, we live with a a strange kind of spiritual dissonance. On the one hand, we feel like we are these glorious creatures. We feel majestic. We feel important in a way that we can't quite put our finger on. And yet we also simultaneously feel this deep and abiding sense that something is terribly wrong with us. Now this is exactly what we would expect to feel if this gospel story were true. You see, the gospel says that we are worth more than we can ever know because we're God's image bearers. But the gospel also says that because of our sin, we are ruined in a way that we cannot even begin to wrap our minds around. We have rebelled against our king who has shared his glory with us. We have spurned his glory. We have spurned our responsibilities and we are deserving of death and hell forever because of that. We have to be clear on this point. When we fell in sin, mankind, it wasn't just some terrible cosmic accident like Adam and Eve just sort of were running across the room in socks and they slipped and they spilt milk all over the floor. No, it was an act of conscious, outright rebellion. And it has been ever since for all of the children of Adam and Eve. We have repeated their sins. We have been able to behold the glory of God in our fellow man. Behold the glory of God (coughs) in all of creation. And what have we done? We have spurned it. We have rejected it. (coughs) Romans 1 says that we've exchanged it for the glory of creation, a lesser glory. And that's pretty bad news. And then everything changes with Jesus. You see, friends, we were created to be representatives of the high king of heaven, and we failed But the high king of heaven came down to earth to be with us, to fix our failures, to clean up our mess. The first Adam, man, his failure was ruinous. But Jesus, the second Adam, came and he fixed everything. In the Bible, we learn that Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Do you understand what he's saying here? We are men. We were created in the likeness of God. We ruin that. So God 
diminishes his glory and comes on to take the likeness of man to save us from our mistakes. And being found in human form, he humbled himself beyond his mere incarnation by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. His death on the cross is a picture of our failure. On the cross, we see God himself entering into our failure to pay the price for our sins. But then he gets up out of the grave. He's resurrected. He is victorious. The one who came in the image, as the image of the invisible God, now presents that image back to us and calls us to be united with himself through faith. Just think about it. During his earthly ministry, Jesus succeeded in imaging God perfectly in every way that we failed. Just stop and think about the ways that you have failed to image God perfectly this week. The list is probably, you know, as many stars in the sky, grains of sand in the sea. That's how much we failed to image God. And when Jesus came, he never, not once, not even for a single second, failed to image God. He exercised his dominion over the earth and subdued all of creation perfectly. And he did not do it by means of force and violence. He did it through sacrificial love. He did not exercise dominion for his own selfish gain, but for the glory of his Father and for the good of of his neighbors. Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. <clears throat> Just as we sinners have been born of the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Friends, this is the promise of the gospel. That if you repent and turn from your sins and your failures and these lesser glories that you've latched onto, Christ will unite you to himself and restore you to the original glory for which you were created. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this is your destiny to image God perfectly once again. When I use the word destiny, I use it because, well, it's a nice word. It's a lovely word. It's, it's a majestic word. It feels like Tolkien would use that word. I love Tolkien. But I also use that word because it is pinpoint accurate, according to what Scripture says about you and your future, if you are in Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, that is, those he loved in eternity's past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It is your destiny. If you're here and you're like, oh, I don't know about this predestination stuff. It's so controversial. I just can't. Predestination is about you being restored to the image and glory of God. And it was something that was planned out not yesterday, not a month ago, not a year ago, not a century ago. Before God spoke the words of Genesis 1, before he said, let there be light, 
He had already ordered all of history in such a way as to bring you back into conformity with the image of himself. And then we even have an active role to play in this. By God's grace, Paul says it like this to the Colossians. Put off the old self, glory ruined, mirror shattered, right? Put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Finally, friends, you should know that the story of the image of God does not end with you. God has not predestined you to be recreated into the image of Christ so that you can just sit there and just kind of hog it all for yourself. I got the glory and you ain't got none. No. I guess that was just me growing up. No. When he recreates you into his image to represent his glory, you are then called to go out to the nations and to call people to the same thing. Hey, you're not supposed to live like this. You weren't created for this. You were created for more. You were created for glory. You were created for dominion. You were created to image the God of all of heaven and earth out into the cosmos. And so as a church, our call, our mission, to reverberate what our pastor Will Stevenson said this morning, is to go out into the nations and to proclaim the image of God in the face of Christ, calling people back into this glory for which they were created. On Monday nights, I'm not doing it now, but for years now, on Monday nights, I go into the county jail, and I go into the pod, and I preach. And whenever I start a new semester there, I always start with Genesis 1. I always start with Genesis 1. Why? Because they see themselves as so broken, so hopeless, so low, so marred, so damaged, that they cannot image God. But friends, the gospel says there is no one who fits into that category. There's no one. Not a pedophile, not a racist. I mean, just, I can't, I'm trying to think of like the worst person in the world. It doesn't matter. If that person repents of their sin and trusts in Christ, the free offer of grace is made available to them. And the really good news about it is you don't have to do anything. He recreates you into his image by his grace if you will just turn and trust in him today. So I pray that you will. Let's pray. Lord God, your word has given us life once again as your people. And so we pray that as we go back out into the world that we'll be faithful, that we will represent you well. When we fail, we pray that we'll repent quickly and strive to grow in sanctification. And God, we pray that you will use this church to bring many, many more sons and daughters to glory. Amen.